Hello, this is Frank Skinner and welcome to my poetry podcast. This week I would like to cover a poem by an American poet called Robert Frost, who lived from 1874 to 1963. He lived just long enough to read his poetry at uh, John F. Kennedy's inauguration. In fact, Robert Frost in American culture is sort of Mr. Poetry Establishment in many ways. He is Robert Frost. He's that kind of a poet. And that puts some people off, but I do think he's brilliant. And this particular poem that I'm talking about today is one of my all-time faves. I'll be straight with you. Robert Frost briefly wrote a lot about rural New England, which is sort of northeast USA. And it's very conversational and simple. And there will be times during this I use the word folksy because it's got that kind of country people talking sense feel to it. But believe me, it's a lot deeper than that. And there's a lot more going on with Frosty, even though he... uh, denies that when he talks about his poetry very often and tries to talk it down. But it's all in there. And this poem that I want to talk about, it's a poem from 1923 called The Star Splitter. And, ah, man, I love it. I really love it. I'm going to let you see why. It begins uh, with inverted commas. So someone other than the uh, voice of the poem is speaking. Someone is being quoted at the beginning in one long sentence right up top. And this is what that quoted person is saying. You know, Orion always comes up sideways, throwing a leg up over our fence of mountains and rising on his hands. He looks in on me, busy outdoors by lantern light with something I should have done by daylight and indeed, after the ground is frozen, I should have done before it froze and a goss flings a handful of waste leaves at my smoky lantern chimney to make fun of my way of doing things or else fun of Orion's having caught me. Has a man, I should like to ask, no rights? These forces are obliged to pay respect to? Okay, that's, that is um, all in inverted commas. And so someone, we don't know who at this stage, is being quoted. And the quoted speaker refers to Orion, of course, which is a constellation of stars. And so early on, we get it that the speaker is... Uh, has some interest in in astronomy, maybe even classical mythology. It's all in that first bit. But it seems like everyday chat. And and like I say, Robert Frost, he goes for the conversational. I think that he believes there is poetry in everyday speech, if you can hear it, if you can find it, if you come to recognise it. And that's why... It sounds at least like conversation, even though he has helped it in in certain places. So this guy, whoever is speaking, I've given away that it's a male at this point. He makes Orion sound like a a neighbour or a local colourful character 
who uh, just turns up. As he says, he looks in on me. The sort of thing you would say about a a neighbour visiting. And so everything is made very local and familiar. Domestic, if you like. Even the mountains are described as our fence of mountains. It begins, by the way, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, with you know, which is an unusual way to, to begin a poem, but not an unusual way to begin a conversation. And so... Uh, we get that voice of the people stray off in this poem. Orion seems mischievous, childlike even in this. Orion is the great hunter. It's, it's probably the one star constellation that people know usually. I'd say the plough was a close second, but Orion, I think, wins because it's got a. he wears a distinctive belt. And um, he sort of comes cartwheeling into view in this, uh, in the beginning of this poem, teasing the speaker, but there's still a sense, uh, as I say, that that although it's in a in a folksy way, there you go. I told you I was going to say folksy. Although it's in a folksy way, whoever is being quoted here does have some knowledge of astronomy, no matter how basic, and and some sort of interest in it. His description also of his oft-neglected chores makes him sound like a farmer who spends perhaps too much time with his head in the stars, too much time looking up and not enough time looking at the land. Maybe a farmer who isn't really cut out to be a farmer. And I'm always, as you know, very wary of um, biographical stuff just being stuck onto a poem as if it's a diary entry rather than a work of art. But it is interesting to note, perhaps, that Robert Frost worked as a farmer, had a farm for uh, nine years, during which time he wrote a hell of a lot of poetry, and that was clearly his first love. And um, the farm failed, but by then he was a good enough poet, along with a bit of teaching, uh, to live. And you can't help thinking... This is a guy who's staring at the stars, who's a bad farmer, being a farmer. And uh, Robert Frost, I'm not saying he was a bad farmer, but ultimately his farm failed because perhaps he had his mind on higher things, poetry rather than astronomy. But you can see the, uh, the analogy. I'm not saying it exists, but I think that's an interesting point. When I say an interesting point, I don't mean I've made an interesting point get me. I mean, it's one of those rare occasions when biography has some sort of um, non-intrusive insight to it. So he says here, um, a ghost flings a handful of waste leaves in his direction. Uh, The wind also seems like a sort of local character. They're all teasing this speaker, turning up with a cartwheel when he least expects it, um, throwing a handful of leaves at him. It's like nature's sort of making fun of his slightly rubbish way of doing things. He works in the dark, he's working the land when it's frozen, he doesn't follow all the nature's guidelines. He, so he sort of fails on the land because, as I say, he's too busy staring at the sky. And he's working at night, I suspect, because night is when the sky is at its most animated and he just loves to be out in that amidst the stars. 
But it is, it's still conversational. And when he says at the end of that uh, quoted chunk at the beginning of the poem, has a man, I should like to ask, no rights these forces are obliged to pay respect to? I like very much, I should like to ask, again, very conversational. And it makes it sound like a neighbour who's really talking to you. But we don't know who this person is at the moment. And when he says, uh, has a man, I should like to ask, no right to these forces are obliged to pay respect to, that could just be a whimsical, jokey remark about, can you believe we have to put up with this from Orion and from the wind? Or maybe, you know, he is a person who, who, who believes in these anthropomorphic forces and believes that they are picking on him. We don't know at this point anything about him other than he's not the best farmer in the world and he's interested in astronomy. We're about to find out quite a lot about him in an explosion of information from the speaker uh, of the poem rather than the quoted speaker who we've met so far. So in, in the next seven lines, the quotation marks are gone now. This is the voice of the poem and... He drops a big one, I would say. So Brad McLaughlin mingled reckless talk of heavenly stars with hogger mogger farming. So Brad McLaughlin clearly is the man who's been quoted in the, in the first lines. So Brad McLaughlin mingled reckless talk of heavenly stars with hogger mogger farming. Hogger mogger meaning sort of chaotic. Reckless talk of heavenly stars with hogger mogger farming till having failed at hogger mogger farming, he burned his house down for the fire insurance and spent the proceeds on a telescope to satisfy a lifelong curiosity about our place among the infinities. <laughs> now, I mean, it's been quite... Genial, it's been a guy talking about not being a very good farmer. He's introduced there as Brad McLaughlin. I like the idea of him mingling reckless talk of heavenly stars. And you think, well, it's not that reckless, is it? But maybe in a rural community where um, there isn't much recklessness, maybe it, it does seem quite wild. And I also like the repetition of hogamoga farming that he mingled reckless talk of heavenly stars with hogger farming to having failed at hogger farming. And it's like he didn't even fail at proper farming. He even failed at the hogger slightly rubbish farming that he was trying to do. This is how ill-suited he was to that life. But that moment when he burned his house down for the fire insurance and spent the proceeds on a telescope to satisfy a lifelong curiosity about our place among the infinities. That, when I first read that, I can still remember the thrill of that, just the story just catching fire like that, as it did, of course, the farmhouse. And the speaker races ahead of his narrative here. He's, it's like when someone is telling you a story, not professionally, but just someone you meet in the street or in a pub or whatever. They want to get to the juicy bits quick and then they can, they can fill in the details after. But they've got to hook you early on. And, I mean, that is a way to hook you, that he burned down his farm and spent the money on a, on a telescope. 
Uh, it's fab. And I have to say, when people ask me to recommend poems, which they do occasionally, I will often say to them, read Robert Frost, The Star Splitter. I love that poem. And they'll say, oh, what's it about? And I say, oh, it's about a guy who uh, burnt down his farmhouse and used the insurance money to buy a telescope. And uh, I enjoy just relating it like that to other people. It's such a remarkable story. So the last two sentences of this section, uh, to satisfy a lifelong curiosity about our place among the infinities, it's quite a big tone change now. Suddenly, his extreme actions of burning down his own farmhouse and basically fiddling the insurance company, they, they, they seem sort of justified, even reasonable, uh, to this reader, at least. The poet who is speaking, the voice of the poem, talked, if you remember, about Brad McLaughlin's talk of heavenly stars as that was reckless, I guess because it perhaps alienated people in the local community. But he doesn't really offer a judgment on the arson that's been committed. He just rattles it off. I don't know if, if the speaker is slowly chewing a piece of hay when he tells his story, but it really feels like it's got that. I, I was uh, on a ranch holiday in Montana once and a cowboy said, right, we need to go now. So we all got ready and he walked about 20 yards and squatted down and drew some stuff in the, in the, in the dust with a stick for about 10 minutes. And then we left. And that is the, the Montana definition of now. And this feels a bit like that, is that nothing's rushed. We're told the stories without any sensationalism, even though the speaker clearly knows that this is a, a, a ripping yarn. So then we go on to a, a minor debate, and it, it, it centres around the use of the word blame. And blame is used, blame and blamed is used in, in American uh, colloquialism sort of euphemistically for damned, to avoid saying damned. Get those blamed things out of here, that kind of um, thing. Okay, so this is the, uh, the voice of, of the poem now. What do you want with one of those blame things? I asked him well beforehand. Don't you get one? And then Brad comes in. Don't call it blamed. There isn't anything more blameless in the sense of being less a weapon in our human fight, he said. And I'll have one if I sell my farm to buy it. So there's two things going on here. There's this idea that um, there isn't anything that's less a weapon than, than a, a telescope that Brad champions its blamelessness. There isn't anything more blameless in the sense of being less a weapon in our human fight, he said. Now, I'm, I'm guessing there were plenty of guns amongst the rural folk of 1920s New England. A telescope looks gun-like, and it is pointed, and it's aimed, and it's focused, but to learn and to wonder and to observe the opposite of, of, of destruction. So I, I suppose Brad's, it's a sort of anti-weapon. It's the opposite of a weapon. I don't know quite what our human fight is. It could be the constant conflict and hostility of 
mankind, can I still say mankind, humankind, for Brad it could be the battle of his life, his fail farming, his lack of interest in, I don't know, struggle and rewards, and he just his desire to just look and learn. I suppose Brad McLaughlin is... is He's like the poster boy for everyone who ever wanted to quit the rat race, walk away from their job and do what makes them happy and fulfilled. There'll be people listening to this who've done that or were thinking about doing it. And Brad just did it and he did it in a spectacular way. The other point I would make about the passage I just read is, you see, he says he's going to get a telescope if I have... He says, I'll have one if I sell my farm to buy it. So clearly the speaker has gone back now and um, pre-fire and he's jumping about. He just had to, like I say, in his conversational storytelling way, he had to let us know about the insurance scam because that was the hook that, that keeps us going. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a, a little bit more talking about his farming initially. There where he moved the rocks to plough the ground and ploughed between the rocks he couldn't move. Few farms changed hands. So rather than spend years trying to sell his farm and then not selling, he burned his house down for the fire insurance and bought the telescope with what it came to. So it's a a great image of... um, He's bad farming there where he moved the rocks to plough the ground and ploughed between the rocks he couldn't move. It sounds so tough and frustrating. And it, again, there's a sort of a justification of burning of the farms. It's, it's quite hard to sell farms around there. It's got a, a, a fabulous sort of practicality. But that The fact that he then says, oh, he burnt his house down for the fire insurance, an exact repetition of what he said before and bought the telescope with what it came to is a slight modification. And it's the way, I think, when we tell a story that we are enjoying telling, that we keep going back to the main theme and repeating that. And there's something very practical about... I'm not saying he's justifying Brad burning the farm down, but that idea, it's quite hard to sell farms around here and he didn't want to wait. So it's fabulously sort of non-judgmental, which may be something we don't associate with rural life, where I think we, certainly we, I speak as a city dweller, encouraged to see rural folk as very narrow-minded uh, judgmental, etc. And um, it's not coming across yet in this poem. I'm going to read more because I really like reading it for one reason. So then he, he goes on to talk about the attitude of the people of Littleton, which is where all this is happening, this small town. And as I say, rather than seeing it as a narrow-minded, judgmental place, Frost sees this community as a source of wisdom, sort of simple and unadulterated. It's got a sort of return to the source feel to it, a place where you've got time and space for clear thinking. And when we expect to see Brad, I think, uh, viewed as a reckless outsider and contrasted with the common sense 
townsfolk. We don't quite get that. It's a bit what we hear from the people of Littleton is a bit different, as I, as I shall unfold for you. This is after the third time we're told that after such loose talk, it was no surprise when he did what he did and burned his house down. He loves telling us that. Like any street storyteller, he loves repeating the main punchline. Okay, it goes on. Mean laughter went about the town that day to let him know we weren't the least imposed on and he could wait. We'd see to him tomorrow. So... They wouldn't be rushed into a response, the people of uh, Littleton. The, the, the spotlight, centre stage in the local life is, is withheld. They, they won't be, as they said, they won't be imposed on. They won't be compelled to behave in a certain way. They're just going to say, oh, OK, we know what Brad did. If he thinks he's going to be what everyone's talking about, well, let him wait a day. Let him think about it. And then it, it continues after they've had their day to think it over. Listen to this. But the first thing next morning we reflected, if one by one we counted people out for the least sin, it wouldn't take us long to get so we had no one left to live with. For to be social is to be forgiving. And the use of we and us in that... The voice of the community suggests that this is a story that's been discussed in the local store on street corners for those 24 hours. And this is what they've kind of arrived at as a group. Although I, I like, as I say, Frost likes to be conversational, likes to sound like people speaking. He's not afraid of the odd aphorism. And for to be social is to be forgiving is uh, is a great line. And I think it's a line that works less well in the city where there is more choice of company, if you like. So again, we, we're challenged on, on our sort of stereotypical small town views. The small group is, it, it turns out in this case, for practical reasons, more forgiving and less judgmental and more broad-minded than maybe a city group would be. Because there's only a few of them and, and they have to live together. It's, uh, it's not really a moral decision, it's a practical decision. You know, we all have to get on, we need, we need company, we want to be speaking. And this forgiving community is, is, is summed up in one brilliant example. And the, the plural pronouns of this, the we and the our in this section I'm about to read, I think really challenge us. So this is another example of the community explaining why they're not heavy on Brad for what he's done. Our thief, the one who does our stealing from us. I mean, the use of the word our in that. Our thief, the one who does our stealing from us. We don't cut off from coming to church suppers, but what we miss, we go to him and ask for. He promptly gives it back. That is, if still uneaten, unworn out or undisposed of. So the thief, the local thief and his theft have been sort of subsumed by the community. 
our classic fear of like the other is overcome by I think in this by making the other ours of of reducing the thief's difference, if you like, till his theft just becomes another aspect of of the community. He's the town thief, and um, and I'm sure is discussed as such, and. His acceptance isn't even based on the return of the goods. He does that when it's practical. And again, it's the practical that's always the key consideration in this world. Just as Brad's fire was caused by the problem of not being able to sell your farm very quickly. They even include his age at one part as as a practical reason for the fire. It wouldn't do to be too hard on Brad about his telescope. Beyond the age of being given one's gift for Christmas, he had to take the best way he knew how to find himself in one. Find himself in one, I'm I'm guessing, is some sort of contrary terminology, forgetting something. But yeah, he was was too old to get it as a gift for Christmas, so why not burn the farmhouse down and, and get it that way? Again, practicality is prominent in all this. And they go on... Well, all we said was he took a strange thing to be roguish over. So there's still some suspicion about the telescope. But, you know, it's what Brad wanted and he he just, um, he got it the best way he could. And you get a real sense now of priority in this community from this next bit. Some sympathy was wasted on the house. Good old timer dating back along. But a house isn't sentient. The house didn't feel anything. And if it did, why not regard it as a sacrifice? An old-fashioned sacrifice by fire instead of a new-fashioned one at auction. And I think there you get the suspicion of the modern world is they'd rather have that traditional... They'd rather it was burnt than it somehow became part of a commercial, capitalistic, cotton-thrust money-centred world. Better that it that it went up in flames. Anyway, I'm going to uh, move for I'll cut a little bit. Uh, Brad gets a job selling tickets at the railway station, essentially, and uh, and he, he buys his telescope. I'm going to read a bit which I just, I love. I love this so much. And you're just going to have to sit back and let me enjoy reading it. He got a good glass for $600. His new job gave him leisure for stargazing. Yes, I've said leisure. I think it works in this con. I think it needs to be leisure in this, uh, in this context. He got a good glass for $600. His new job gave him leisure for stargazing. Often he bid me come and have a look up the brass barrel, velvet black inside at a star quaking in the other end. I recollect a night of broken clouds and underfoot snow melted down to ice and melting further in the wind to mud. Bradford and I had out the telescope. I mean, he's Bradford. He's become Bradford now, Brad McLaughlin. Bradford and I had out the telescope. We spread our two legs as we spread its three. <sighs> Pointed our thoughts the way we pointed it. Now just get the last two lines of this bit. And standing at our leisure till the day broke, said some of the best things we ever said. I 
can't tell you how happy that probably a dozen lines makes me. The way he talks about the weather, I recollect a night of broken clouds and underfoot snow melted down to ice and melting further in the wind to mud. It's thrown away that, but it just gives you that sense of a person who knows nature, who, who is close to the land, that he notices all that stuff and, and feels the need to, to explain exactly what, what it's like underfoot. And the, the, the voice of the poem, I don't want to call him Robert Frost, I want to call him the, the speaker of the poem, who, who had earlier said of the telescope, if you remember, it said to, to Brad, don't you get one. Now he sort of luxuriates in the experience of sharing it. Brad, as I say, is now Bradford. The abbreviation doesn't seem grand enough for this special event of looking into the telescope. And honestly, the idea that they standing at our leisure till the day broke said some of the best things we ever said. I mean, that is just joyous to me. And it, we, we never know what they are. We don't need to. We just know that they experience the pleasure of saying some of the best things they ever said. And the telescope now is a sort of means to an end. It, it, it brings out the best in Brad and in and in the speaker, does the speaker feel it's got worth as an actual scientific instrument? I, I don't I don't know if he really places any value on the telescope for what it does technically. I mean, this could be two guys fishing. Really, this this section, they stretched out their legs and tore. It seems to be that the, the core of the experience is just these two guys being together, sharing and talking. That's that's the important thing. They pointed their thoughts the way they pointed it, it says. And I'm guessing that was randomly, but with gusto, is, is what I suspect the pointing of their thoughts and the telescope was like. So then we get uh, a section that gives us the title, because I, the first time I read this, I, I, I had no idea what a star splitter was or what it meant. They give it the, the title, and, and, then we, and then the speaker explains why. That telescope was christened the Star Splitter because it didn't do a thing but split a star in two or three the way you split a globule of quicksilver in your hand with one stroke of your finger in the middle. It's a star splitter if ever there was one, and ought to do some good if splitting stars are a thing to be compared with splitting wood. Now, I wasn't sure what splitting stars meant, and I looked it up, and basically there are things that they call double stars. And because they are, or they appear, I'll, I'll give you a quick science. I'm not a science person, but if it applies to poetry, I'm happy with it. There are things called binary stars, which are two stars joined in the same orbit. And often they're very, very close together. So from a distance, obviously we're looking from a tremendous distance, you can't really see that it's two things. It looks just like one. And there's also stars which are not that close together, but they're in the same line that we're looking at. So they, it's hard to distinguish them as two separate entities. 
It's a bit like, you know, when you stand in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and your mate takes a photo of you and it looks like you're holding it on the palm of your hand. That, that's what I mean by they're in the same line. It, it, it looks like it's, it's two things joined, but they are separate. And a really good um, telescope will separate these double stars and you'll be able to see their distinct individual globes. I actually looked up a, a site called Sky and Telescope and there's a bloke on there called Alan Adler. And he says, this is a quote from whoever Alan Adler is, I love you. In my opinion, a pretty double in a small scope is lovelier than a faint smudge of galaxy in a giant light bucket. And I'm always on the lookout, I think as Robert Frost was, of poetry just happening accidentally mid-conversation. And I think, I think it's often found on the lips of the obsessive, be it Brad McLaughlin or be Alan Adler on the Sky and Telescope site. Anyway, we're nearing the end. Don't, don't, don't switch me off. We're nearly there. So it said Brad's telescope split these stars visually the way you split a globule of quicksilver in your hand. And if you're aware of it, mercury is another word for um, quicksilver. And if you, it, it goes into balls if you sort of touch it and knock it about. I'm not, don't do this because I think it's probably toxic as well. But we used to do it at school when the toxic was an everyday occurrence. And so you can split one ball of quicksilver or mercury into two, the way this this telescope separated one lump of planetary thing into its two individual bodies. Okay, so the speaker, I don't know, he sort of damns the telescope with faint praise. I mean, that that last bit. It's a star splitter, if ever there was one, and ought to do some good if splitting stars are a thing to be compared with splitting wood. So again, it's the practical. There's a suggestion that splitting wood is probably a bit more important than splitting stars, but, you know, he's sort of, he's fine with it. And then we move on to the last stanza. I'm going to read that and then I'll talk. We've looked and looked, but after all, where are we? Do we know any better where we are and how it stands between the night tonight and a man with a smoky lantern chimney? How different from the way it ever stood? So have we learnt much from looking through the telescope? He doesn't condemn the study of the stars, the speaker, but he sort of doubts that it really changes anything or makes anything better or clearer. Anything that really matters, that is. He doesn't say that it isn't a thing to be compared to splitting wood. I mean, splitting wood is, I suppose, at the very practical end of rural life, heat, cooking. Uh, splitting stars is, is about seeing rather than doing. But this isn't a poem, uh, although there is some evidence of a sort of cult of practicality amongst the people of Littleton. It isn't a poem that suggests that every activity must have an end or, or a purpose. I mean, to say some of the best things we ever said is reward enough, it seems, in this poem. And, and the last stanza could be saying astronomy is pointless, but is that a criticism in the world of this poem? Does everything need a, a point? 
that attitude, you know, to the auction and that kind of thing, everything doesn't need to be tied to some end result. The telescope, uh, it, you know, it freed Brad from Hogamogga farming, which was clearly unsuited to makes him happy. Okay, its purchase was arson-based, but it still brings out the best, the non-judgmental best in the in the community, and and it, and it brings it seems Brad and the speaker closer together. So when he says it didn't do a thing but split a star in two or three, but it did all of the things I've just said. It it, it was it, it did a lot of good separately. I think partly because a person who loved something, took the big risks, gave up what he had and sought out that thing that he loved and that brought him his happiness. It is hard, and again, we go back to the biograph, it's hard not to equate Brad's sort of folksy astronomy with Robert Frost's slightly folksy poetry, which I think he... As I said, he left farming for it. And while he farmed, he was more of a poet than a farmer. And some might see that as the poetry as, as, as less good than, than splitting wood. He himself, there's a nice quote from Robert Frost about poetry. He makes claims for it, but he makes the sort of claims that someone in this community might make. I, I, I'll give you a, a quote. He said, a poem begins in delight and ends in wisdom. Now, that sounds, oh, that sounds good. That's a brilliant thing, poetry is. But then, of course, he has to slightly on, undercut that. So he said, a poem begins in delight and ends in wisdom. It is a clarification of life. Not necessarily a great clarification, such as sects or cults are founded on, but in... Uh, a momentary stay against confusion. So that's sort of the best we can hope for from a poem, is a momentary stay against confusion, holding off confusion just for a short while, like a stay of execution, a stay of confusion. And maybe that's what the telescope is for Brad. He needed it. He loved it. He wanted to do it. He walked away from all the things he was supposed to do towards the thing that he loved. I think Robert Frost did that as well. And I hope some of you listening out there have or will do exactly that same thing because I think that probably is where happiness lies. And if this poetry podcast is about anything at all, it's about making people happy. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of my poetry podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. <laughs> Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week. Oh, and uh, P.S. There aren't enough P.S.'s in podcasts. If you like this, you can listen to The Frank Skinner Show every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. That is also available, of course, as a podcast. It's, uh, it's got less poetry in it than this, but uh, more laughs. <laughs>